1: And be sure to share. Second City is back open for live shows, in-person classes, and customized corporate workshops and performances. But we also have all those things available in virtual formats. You can go online and find out all the information you need at secondcity.com. Oh, this is a really interesting podcast, I think. It's with Robert Posen, who teaches at the MIT Sloan School of Management. He was the president of Fidelity Investments and executive chair of MFS Investment Management. And he's written seven books, including the top-rated business book, Extreme Productivity. And then Alexandra Samuel is a tech speaker and data journalist who co-founded the social media agency Social Signal. She's written for the Wall Street Journal and Harvard Business Review. And they've co-written a new book, which is called Remote Inc., how to thrive at work, wherever you are. Enjoy the pod. The Second City is a world-famous comedy theater, and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance, and the same practices that made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage, at work, at home, and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Executive Director of Insights and Applied Improvisation at the Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, seeking connections, and finding a better way. This is Getting to Hand. and Days can't be counted by the money spent. Today was just another better left unsaid. Days count it by the time to rent tomorrow's
0: just another like the one that comes next the court of the highway that leads to the job at the desk by the boss with the elegant watch the tick of the clock and the tick of the clock mark the moments till the ticket stops
1: bob and alex welcome to the show
2: thanks so much for having us
1: yes glad to be with you all right. I'm going to resist the temptation to make this entire half hour we're going to spend together just on email, but I'm very tempted to do just that. The, the, <laughs> the and we're going to get to that. Uh, so, like, let's, but there's going to be significant conversations about email because it. I have incorporated your suggestions and it's changed my life. So right there, uh, but probably probably besides the email, the most powerful takeaway I had from this book, and there are many fantastic takeaways is that most of us have an outdated framework for how we consider our working lives. Uh, and you note in the book that quote, every single home office is essentially its own freestanding enterprise end quote. And this leads to your concept of a business of one. So Bob, can you tell us what, what that is? Cause I think this is so important to the premise of, of everything that comes after in the book.
0: Well, we think that uh, the business of one means that you when you're working remotely, you control your own time, you control your own resources, you control your own skills. So like you're running a small business, you should be yourself as a business owner and therefore not an employee who takes instructions from your boss who tells you what to do every day. So the implications of that are that you treat your boss as your client, mm-hmm. you, you get directions from your client, but then you negotiate a set of deliverables with time targets from your client. And then it's up to you when and how and where you work, because your client wouldn't micromanage you every hour or every day. They just want to know, are you going to produce it at the end of the whatever the relevant period? And so that's a change in mindset. Mm -hmm. It frees you up tremendously And moves the the ball away from hours worked as an input measure and to results accomplished, which is what we think is the appropriate uh, output measure.
1: So in in, in improv, we have this phrase, like, see all obstacles as gifts. I can totally see how this present moment, going remote, you know, coming up with this fantastic idea. But I also feel like it works for (laughs) the regular workplace too. Not that they're going to let you uh, behave in the same way. And there is definitely differences between remote, but Alex, doesn't this, it seems to apply just to work.
2: Well, I feel like you're spoiling our ending here, Kelly, because, (laughs) um, you know, we confess in the final pages of the book that, you know, fundamentally our prescriptions and recommendations for productivity as a remote worker or as somebody who's working part-time remotely, which is what we're going to see more and more of, You know, those are really prescriptions that are going to serve you just as well in the office. The reason that we focus on remote work is that it's so hard for people, I think, when they first start working remotely to see the ways they not only need to change, but can change their way of working. And so, you know. To our mind, the beauty of remote work is it's exactly what you're saying, that precisely because it's so difficult to pop in and have a chat with somebody, it's so complicated and draining to have meeting after meeting over video, it challenges you to work in a different way. And once you learn that way of working, it actually makes you more productive wherever you are.
1: Yeah, I mean this idea of productivity is so uh, essential, and and I think for many of us, I mean we're I'm back in the office now, but you know we we were out um, and, and working from home. That was my first time ever doing it. Whereas my wife was very used to that in in, in her work. Um, and when and Bob, I want you to talk to this in terms of okay, if you're not you know uh, measuring productivity by your workday, how are you measuring productivity?
0: That's our concept of success metrics. We think you've got to switch from hours of work, which is an input, to results accomplished. But we try to make that operational and say that you and your boss slash client should agree on how are we going to measure success? At the end of the period, how are we going to know whether we've been successful? And that switches the conversation uh, into a very... Useful and functional orientation where you're really clarifying with your boss, your client, as to what you're really trying to accomplish. Uh, And then once you have these success metrics, and hopefully your boss won't feel like he or she has to micromanage you, and then third of all, you get this tremendous boost to flexibility so that you can work when and where and how you want and so that helps your work-life balance. So success metrics has all three of those benefits.
1: It's it's so, like, like the fact that we weren't doing this anyway is hilarious to me, but, but widely true in my experience of, of uh, many years in, in business. I used to, I had a playwriting teacher who used to tell me that if you can't tell me your play in one sentence, you don't have a play. And I think this idea of actually forcing individuals, you know, bosses and employees to Say out loud, like have it. Let's write this down. What is the thing we're doing? What are we trying to accomplish? Um, how are we going to get there? How are we going to measure it? And then, what I love about the book is, is it's so practical in terms of it doesn't stop there, right? You need to have these frequent check-ins, and then especially in these remote situations, uh, brevity uh, matters. And and we'll we'll unlock the whole you know meeting stuff a little bit later in this conversation. But uh, Alex, I want you to talk a little bit about two. You actually uh do quite a careful um analysis of of where people are in the ladder right like so if you're a, 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 if you have a lot of autonomy um right. you can operate in a service yeah so talk to us a little bit about uh, the the different players in business and how they each react differently to the situation
2: absolutely well you know this was a really important part of our thinking because um and and really a function of how different Bob and I are in ways that I think really brought some richness to the book Bob has worked in the corporate world for you know much of his career and and worked at really senior levels I've been um, an uncorrigible uh, <laughs> independent type it's been uh, not such a great fit for me to be in organizations I've done better on my own and so what we found as we were working was so much of our thinking about what you could or couldn't do as a remote worker, was really affected by our relative experiences. I tended to think that, you know, everything was possible. Bob was very insightful about the constraints people face when they're working in an organization and aren't the top dog. And so what we talk about in the book are really these two dimensions, that Um, you know, if you're in an organization versus if you're independent, you're going to have a different level of autonomy. But that's not the whole story either. Because if you are, you know, a super rock star, frankly, it doesn't matter if you're running your own business, or if you're in a big organization. If you have a lot of market power, if your boss really wants to keep you you can say, actually, I'm only going to come into the office two days a week. Actually, I'm not going to take any calls in the afternoon. Whereas if you don't have a lot of market power, you might be notionally independent. But if you are doing a very kind of commoditized kind of work, let's say you're, you know, a web developer, but with no particularly fancy skills, and there are thousands of people like you, you don't actually have the ability to set your own hours, and you're going to have to be more responsive to your clients. And so a lot of our strategies in the book, and we actually ended up with this sort of recurring feature in the book talk about how to sell these ideas to your boss. A lot of it really depends on being, you know, honest about your own market power. And then if you don't have the ability to just call the shots yourself, looking for ways to demonstrate to your boss that the more autonomy you have, the better you're going to be able to deliver. And at the end of the day, Really, no matter how uh, much you are under the thumb of your manager, if you can show that you deliver better results when you are given the freedom to work in the way that makes you most effective, your boss, if they know what's good for them, is going to give you the autonomy to do your best.
1: Oh, yeah. And, and, you know, we went through this at Second City in a big way because when the theater, the theater shut down and that they couldn't keep going, but, you know, we do so much work in the corporate space, uh, teaching teams, you know, collaboration, communication, those sort of skills. And when we made the pivot and we, we'd done a little bit of virtual work, but not a lot. Um, we made the pivot, we made it work. But then what was exciting was sort of seeing, you know, what the different salespeople, you know, were able to sell and, and the kind of success and conversations, uh, they, they were having. And so it was in many ways easier to measure, because we had just gone through this this whole thing. And I mentioned collaboration because that's something that we we teach a lot um, uh, using improvisation. But you have this uh, concept in the book, that uh, Bob, that you talk about called punctuated collaboration, not a term I was ever uh, familiar with. Can you talk about that?
0: Well, Alex invented that term. We have to give her credit for that. Yeah. Uh,
1: the notion is that you don't have to be,
0: you know, on your video uh, with your team, you know, eight, ten hours a day, uh, because that's a sort of over-collaboration. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh,
0: really, what you want to do is divide projects and divide your day partly into what what periods do you need for concentration, and then which periods do you need to actually work with other people. And so that's our notion of punctuated collaboration, that you'll be sort of moving smartly uh, back and forth. Uh, your day, in some number of hours, you'll be working uh, yourself in a concentrated manner, and then you'll get back to your, together with your team, and you really need guidance. So for instance, you might start a project where everybody brainstorms, and then people go off and have assignments, and you come back at the end of the day and sort of uh, think about, okay, where are we on this project, and what's, what's going to be our work plan for the rest of the week? So that would be a some simple example of punctuated
1: collaboration. Yeah, Alex. I mean, it's interesting. I think we, you know, collaboration is messy, um, and there are certain things that 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 in in person, you know, you can excel at certain areas of collaboration. But oddly, I think to me at least, but it made sense when when I read about in the book. Being remote allows you to to basically sort of collaborate in different and more effective ways. I think in part because the ability to share documents and writing and build upon what we, we, those tools, I mean, they didn't exist, uh, you know, uh, 15 years ago in, in the way that they do now. But, yeah, it's it's almost it's shown us that this in some ways could be a better way to work.
2: Absolutely. And, you know, a part of what I love about thinking about this through the lens of your world is, you know, if you think about, you um, improvisation relative to other forms of comedy, of performance, right? Not everybody is great in the moment. There's a certain kind of personality, a certain kind of creativity where, you know, you put somebody up there in the spotlight with no prep and there's a certain creative energy that comes forth. But not everybody is that kind of person. Some people need time to stew. Some people do better at midnight than they do at 6pm or 4pm. And so the beauty of this world we live in now is that it allows for people's creativity to come out on different schedules and in different formats. There are going to be people whose best ideas do pop up in the moment in the meeting. And then there are people who whose creativity, whose best thinking only comes out when they have big blocks of uninterrupted kind of meditative time to dig in deeply, focus, reflect, and then they have something to bring forward, but maybe it's not in a live meeting. Maybe their best contributions come through a Google Doc where they can add ideas. Maybe their best ideas come through a visual brainstorming platform where they can show the connections between the different pieces of information in their head. And we are still working for the most part, as if the only way to collaborate is by putting a bunch of people around a boardroom table when the truth is that there are many, many ways that we can bring people together and bring out their best that are actually more effective than that old school paradigm.
1: Yeah. We just had a guest on the podcast who talked her books about digital body language and the, the, I think the contention she says is something like 70, we do 70% to 80% of our communication through digital means now. And yet none of us were trained for that. And especially, especially the difference between uh, what generations think an email means versus a text, mm-hmm. like, like, don't like, don't call a digital native. They'll see that as a provocative act. <laughs> like. Yeah you know my our, bob i think your generation my generation's like you pick up the phone and call someone and it's but it's different now and and so <laughs> understanding that is was like i don't know it's like you know putting on glasses um all right i want to talk about email this is this is this is the thing, the big thing so um uh wh- whichever one of you wants to talk about uh ohio uh let's start with wow. that um bob talk
0: like about you. ohio and then i'll leave the rest of the email to alex yeah <laughs> ohio is uh, basically the concept that you get lots and lots of emails that you shouldn't be spending any time on, or you should just be skipping over and Alex will talk about the filters and things like that. But from time to time you get a really important email from your boss or your spouse, or maybe from the IRS. And so the idea is only handle it once. When you get that important email, if you can answer it right then and there mm-hmm. and, uh if you do that, you'll save lots and lots of time because what are the other alternatives that you'll put it in some sort of holding box and then you'll think about it a few days later and then you'll spend another half an hour trying to find it? Or alternatively, worse, you forget about it. Mm-hmm. Of course, you know, a week later, two weeks later, the IRS comes and uh, repossesses your car. So that's a bad <laughs> So So, uh, you know, it's such a powerful concept because when I go to my pub, our publisher, corporate Collins, people say, Oh, I'm much more productive. I'm doing Ohio. So it's clearly caught on. Uh,
1: so Alex, um, I started the day, uh, with 130 emails in my inbox. So, so on a ba- on a bad, um, time I'm in 300 in a good time. I'm a hundred normally. Um, I know you're covering your face. I, be proud of me. Uh, I'm at six. Wow. I got it down to six. Amazing. And uh, my uh, the uh, my friend Abby, who's next to me, I I explained this whole thing to her, and she goes, "Okay, I'm going to do this today." And and literally, she like uh, instant messaged me, and she's like, "This is unbelievable. I got all these tasks done. I got re- stuff off my plate that I, I realized." And so the, this is the most I and, and my the people I work with are so sick of me talking about this because I just did it today. I was like <laughs> but but go into go into depth on this because I think sure. it's really important that what people need to do and and why they need to do it because I think this would change lives. I really do
2: that's lovely to hear um and i and I feel your pain. I mean this whole methodology is something. Um, that came out of my own experience when I was running a business. And I found that, you know, periodically I would be so overwhelmed with my backlog of unread, unaddressed emails. You know, I was so far from what Bob is advocating and, and completely correctly, right, to only handle things once. I would open things, look at them for a second, not really have a chance to deal with them. I'd miss emails from um, prospective clients, because I had so many emails from my own team. And so finally, what what I had to admit is that most of us or many of us uh, at some point or on some days reach the point where the volume of incoming email is just in absolute terms more than we can deal with. Yeah. And even if we devote our whole day to it, we might not get through it, or we might get through it, but at the expense of work that is more important, at the expense of self-care that is more important. And so what we really have to do is get beyond this idea that every inbox message is somehow, you know, a command from the queen that thou must respond to this email, because as long as you treat every incoming email as a mandatory read and respond, you will never be in control of your own time. So, how do you get to this other approach, the only handle it once approach? Well, you can only do that if you make categorical decisions about which messages are most important for you to see in a timely way, and which messages you'll get to when you get to them, and which messages you might never get to. And Mm -hmm. most of us make those decisions on a minute by minute basis, as we flip through our email, we scan what looks important. And as a result, we're using a lot of of effort, a lot of our cognitive capacity to just decide what's worth opening. And we get this anxiety and this overwhelm and, and our email takes over our whole lives. What we advocate instead is to think in terms of having alternate inboxes that reflect the fact that different emails have different levels of priority. So I'll give you two examples of, of alternate inboxes that I think every single person can use. And if you do literally nothing else from our book, this these two email filters will change your life.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: You create an alternate inbox for your calendar invitations. All of those messages you get that are inviting you to meetings, If you have your calendar set up correctly so that it's connected to your email, all of those messages, all of those calendar invitations are going to appear in your calendar automatically. And when you look ahead at your next week's calendar, you can just accept them from in your calendar. You don't need to see those emails. So I have a folder called Invitations, and every single email that contains a calendar invitation skips my inbox and goes directly to that invitations folder that I literally never look at because I just see the invitations when they're in my calendar. And so that takes care of a whole bunch of clutter and it's a really simple mail rule to set up by just saying any mail rule, that any mail message that includes a calendar invitation goes to that mailbox. Similarly, I have an email uh, folder called newsletters. Easiest rule in the world. If it includes the word unsubscribe it goes to my newsletters folder. Now, you know, maybe one in 2000 emails is an actual email from a human being that contains the word unsubscribe. And I am sorry to those people for missing their messages. But I will tell you that by keeping the other 1999 messages off my immediate radar, it saves me so much time, so much attention, so much cognitive overhead, that it's really worth doing. So those two rules are a starting point. I also have, you know, an alternate inbox for everything that is CC'd to me. Those are things I need to look at eventually, but do I want to miss a message to me from my boss, to me, from a client, to me, from someone who wants me to speak at their conference because I have 40 messages that were CC'd to me in case I might kind of sometimes sort of need to look at them? No, I do not want to miss those messages. So anything that is CC'd to me goes to a separate CC'd inbox. And, you know, when I'm checking my email throughout the day, I don't worry about all those CC's. Once or twice a day, I go into the CC's folder, I take a glimpse, I look and see if there is anything that needs my attention. But what those kinds of rules and alternate inboxes mean is that my actual primary inbox, the one I compulsively look at every time I'm standing in a lineup or waiting for my food to heat up or ignoring my children, you know, (laughs) that (laughs) that quality time goes only to the messages that matter most. And all of those less important messages are being shunted to other mailboxes and it doesn't require my any of my decision making overhead to make that happen. I am protecting my attention and protecting my time by automating really the process of saying no to all these emails I don't want to look at right now.
1: Just amazing. I, I don't I don't think we understand how email rules our lives in 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 ways that that uh, and i had another i i had an idea about this also and in, in, inspired by the book which was i probably get uh 10 book publicists a week pitching their books to me and i and i'm friends with all these people cuz i've been doing this now for so long so my idea today was with and there's probably about 13 14 of the different publicists that i deal with on a regular basis so i was thinking of emailing them next time they pitch me and saying hey uh, I think what I'm going to do going forward, if it's okay with you, is if I don't respond, that means I'm not interested. Um, and if you want to like double down and say I really should get back in touch with me, you know, after a few days, I'm fine with that. I'll have that dialogue because I trust these these folks. They know who they they know good guests to have. Uh, but that way, I don't have to think about oh, uh, and then respond and say no, I'm like this. So I just you know we have this agreement. Yeah, what were you going to say? Well-
2: Okay, so I'm, I, everything always turns into a tech support call with me. So here's my suggestion. Look, you're in the driver's seat relative to these publicists. Pick a keyword, pick an unusual keyword. You know, it can be called podcast pitch as one word and say to your publicists, folks, from now on, I'm going to have a systematic approach to reviewing these. So I need your pitches to always include this keyword in the subject line. Then you can set up a mail rule that puts all of those pitches into a single, you know, alternate inbox. You can even, you know, you can do it based on the email addresses of those publicists if you want to. Um, And then and then you can say, you know what, once a week, I set aside an hour, I look at all of those pitches side by side. And instead of looking at them as they come in, I'm going to look at them as a group and say, well, here are 10 different pitches, which are the two that I'm most excited about. Yeah. And that way, you, you again, it thins out your attention, you're not being pulled off task by thinking about something that really is only going to get your focused attention once a week.
1: Oh, Great. Yes. So, so, so much of this is about time, right? And um, I thought one of the interesting things that also relates to time differently, um, and Bob, you guys write about, quote, focusing early on the final product. And I love this idea because we often teach in storytelling, start in the middle. And that's a very useful technique for storytelling because you don't need to have all this exposition. People want to get to it. But when you're looking at a a new project, a new endeavor, this idea of if, if you haven't imagined right and built this like what does this final product look like then you know you could be making a lot of mistakes on the way trying uh, to get there
0: that's one of our key concepts and it's one I developed in business and I've used it in government and academia so people sort of get these big projects and they spend 30 60 days mucking in the information and these days you can overwhelm yourself with information so easily that unless you really have a good idea where you're going you're just going to drown in all that information. And then you think you're going to synthesize it at the end. But by that time, it's really too late. So our idea is pretty simple. Uh, spend a day or two researching this big project and then force yourself to write a tentative outline, tentative conclusions, you can call it whatever you want, knowing that you're going to revise it as you go forward. But that has two big advantages. One is, it forces you to start to think about what are the key analytic issues, the key analytic problems that you're going to have to solve in doing this or in uh, improv the structural approach that you're going to take. And second of all, it gives you a guidance, gives you guidance to how you should gather more information in the next phase. And that's combined with our notion of a mid-flight review, and there might be several of them. So what mm-hmm. we do... In a month or two projects, we want you to start, take the two days, come up with your tentative conclusions, and then every week go through that same process again, revise your conclusion. And then by the time you get to the end to the product, final product, you you've you've forced yourself to think through these difficult problems and you've focused your information on what are the critical decision variables. And that's just a hell of a lot more efficient way than just going through the project and waiting to the end and thinking, well, maybe I'll synthesize it here at the end.
1: So I, I, I'm guessing that you don't know how a second city show is created. Uh, and I kind of want to tell you because I think it's it's related to this, which is once we pick an ensemble that is going to create a show, we normally create these shows in about a 12-week period. So if we were first get together and talk to everyone, what what kind of show do you want to create? What's what's your vision for this thing? But we're co-creating this sh- uh, show the ensemble they're the writers and the performers but they're also co-creating with the audience so we start uh we have three acts two acts are the scripted review like the old show that was there and this third act is where we're improvising new scenes and new ideas based on audience uh suggestions when scenes seem to be working well they'll go in and replace the old scene uh from the new show and slowly the new material takes over but we're really rapid prototyping in front of the audience because we don't want to if they're not gonna be laughing at these scenes we're not gonna keep them in the show so by the time We're ready for opening night. We know because we've piloted and beta tested all this stuff over and over again that it works for the different audiences. So there's no surprises when you get to you know the the finished final product. But along the way, there's a lot of like you know stuff that doesn't work because you have to try it out, and not everything's going to. And I think you're you're also talking about creating from a place of abundance with that when when you're when you're beta testing. We're we're,
0: big fans of beta testing and piloting, and you know we're saying. Well, try it out. Here's what your preliminary analysis is, but maybe it's right. Maybe it's wrong. Try it out and then constantly revise. So uh, I think
1: the way you're doing it is great. Yep. And we've been doing it for over 60 years. I mean, there's a reason that that works. All right. Uh, In a second, I'm going to ask you or in a minute uh, for each of you for a yes and story. But before I do that, uh, Alex, let's talk about um, meetings Um, (laughs) because They're, they're, I mean, that's just as bad as email, if not worse. Uh, and online meetings, wow, that, that can be either the lifeline or the opposite for the remote worker. So t- talk to us about what, what you you two have discovered.
2: Well, we've seen in the past year, essentially, you know, <laughs> an intensification of the long-standing problem with meeting driven business cultures, right? Which is that, you know, Yes, it totally made sense to do everything by meetings in 1965, when the only way to make a decision with other people was either to get them in a room or, you know, have your secretary type up a memo with a carbon copy and put it in the mail and wait a week to get a reply back. I mean, for sure, 50 years ago, a meeting was an awesome way to get things done. But guess what, right? We now have Slack, we have email, we have Google Docs, we have a million uh, digital alternatives for organizing our work, for collaborating, for sharing information, for sharing ideas. And yet meetings have carried on as essentially a legacy of a time when that was our only way to work. And we forget that we have these other alternatives. And part of the reason we forget is because we are used to Meetings being the way we satisfy our human need for connection. Mm -hmm. And particularly, you know, as in this past year when we've been so isolated, many people almost miss the, the office for its social connection more than as a place to get work done because we're so isolated. And what we really want people to remember at this moment when the world is starting to reopen, we do start to have the possibility of meeting face to face again, is that meetings do not need to be the way you solve the problem of loneliness as a remote worker. Meetings Mm -hmm. are to get things done. Meetings are to share ideas. Meetings can be useful for building relationship and trust with the particular people you need to work with. But that other dimension, the human dimension of I just don't want to sit alone in my work closet all the time um, feeling lonely, Well, when you're not in a pandemic, you can satisfy that by making co-working dates with people you enjoy spending time with. You can replace all the time you spend around the water cooler with a daily walk with your best friend. You can get your inspiration from the colleagues you make lunch dates with rather than whoever happens to be sitting at the desk next to you. And so, you know, this is really the moment when we need to reflect on What worked and what didn't work about this past year of remote work in a pandemic reflect on what was carried over into our office culture as a legacy of decades of pre-digital office culture and use this opportunity to invent for ourselves a balance of office and remote work that gives us the benefits of collaboration through meetings when that is really what's called for, but that doesn't treat meetings as the default way to get work done because we do have a much wider range of options now, both for collaboration and for meeting our human need for connection and support.
1: Bob, I'm, I'm curious, did you, when you first set out to write this book, w- were we already in the pandemic or was this?
0: Yes, we were in the pandemic. We, okay. we uh, I teach an executive ed course on personal productivity at MIT. Yeah. Uh, Alex to be a guest lecturer in June of last year. And then in July, we put together a proposal for uh, Harper Collins, and then they accepted it on August 1st, and we had to submit the book by November, so it
1: was- Wow, <laughs> that, that is a, crazy. Is a, uh, uh, my book also was HarperCollins and that was a two-year uh, process.
2: Yeah, I. it was. There's no better recommendation for our expertise on productivity as remote workers than the fact that Bob and I wrote a book together in three and a half months without ever meeting. We still haven't met. It's one of the things I'm looking forward to about getting fully vaccinated.
1: Wow, that's amazing. Oh, OK, well, I mean, that's a yes and story in of itself. Uh, but uh, Alex, I'll start with you. Do you have a yes and story for us?
2: Absolutely. And and it is actually related to the book. So I uh, have worked remotely on and off for most of my career. Um, But until about six years ago, I was back in the office, like a a lot of people, I guess, with young children, I discovered that the beauty of an office is your children are not there. And, um, and I'd had two back to back office jobs over the course of a number of years, when we reached a point with my youngest kid, who we now know is autistic, uh, we were having um, emergency calls to pick him up from school all the time. And one day we had a call and while we were on the phone with my son's support worker you know who was worried because he'd walked out of school and she was following him she lost him he was seven Mm. years old at the time she lost him and we had a police search and we did find him i'm happy to say but you know that is the kind of moment that makes you think okay wait a sec maybe this plan the office job is not going to work yeah and so you know quite quite reluctantly i said yes to homeschooling my child, which was truly the last thing I ever thought in a bazillion years I would ever want to do. I mean, honestly, if it hadn't been for 20 police officers searching the neighborhood for my kid, I probably would never have done it. Um, But I took the leap. And the miracle of it for me was that, you know, I had wanted to be a professional writer since I was eight years old. And I always had reasons why it wasn't the practical thing to do. I couldn't do this. I couldn't do that. But when I said yes to this mission of homeschooling my kid, I started to say yes to the kinds of work that I could fit into the margins of that life of homeschooling Mm -hmm. a special needs kid. And all of the work that fit was writing. And at the end of my first year, I looked at what I'd done and I realized that I was now earning a living as a writer. And after literally 40 years of telling myself that, you know, that wasn't a viable career option, that was what I was doing. And it was because I said yes to something that I didn't think I would want to say yes to, that it opened the door to what I wanted most in my career.
1: Wow, that's powerful. Uh, Bob, do you have a yes hand story for us?
0: Yeah, I do. uh, Which goes back quite a ways. When I was a young uh, professor uh, before I went into business, and uh, I was at a conference uh, and I was asked to go to what I viewed as a very stuffy dinner where all professors would be there uh, with their spouses. And mm-hmm. I was a young guy and had no spouse. And so usually I would have said, no, uh, just mm-hmm. take a pass. But the guy who organized the conference, he said, no, just come Has bring a date, find a date and bring a date. And the conference was in Philadelphia. And actually at that time, I only knew one, one person in Philadelphia. And that was, uh, a woman named Liz, who I had met two years earlier, uh, at a dinner with a friend. And so I called her up and I said, I know this is a little out of the blue, but, uh, I've been invited to go to this dinner. Everybody else is there with their spouse and I need a date. So I was hoping that you would join me. And she did. And uh we got married. So,
1: uh, <laughs> That's great. What a yes and
0: be a great. And and now uh I think we're uh in our forty-fifth year of marriage. So mm-hmm. it was a good uh thing to have accepted.
1: The uh, I, yeah, all right. These are these are some uh, top-notch yes and stories. Uh, the book is called Remote Inc: How to Thrive at Work Wherever You Are. Um, Bob and Alex, thank you so much for coming on the show.
0: Thank you, thank Kelly, you. for being such an intelligent uh, questioner. And you know, we 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 find that some of the people on these podcasts really haven't read very carefully or read at all <laughs> the material before they talk to us. So it's a real pleasure to find somebody who's not only read the material, but actually has thought about it and really uh, asked. And and
1: did it. (laughs) Yeah, it's
0: great.
2: And, and I'm more than happy to uh, answer any email tune-up questions, Kelly. I seriously just basically I'd like to just stand on a street corner with my guitar, you know, case open in front of me and help people with their email. But this is the next do you wanna thing. Give, do you want to so. give that to our listeners? <laughs> Quite seriously, I'm really happy to take questions about how to filter your email. The easiest thing for your listeners is probably Twitter. I'm at AWSamuel on Twitter. And I am happy to suggest the mail rules that will filter out the stuff you don't to see without getting you in trouble
1: with the boss getting the san is produced by second city works and wgm radio our editor and producer is lf garris we get support at the second city from jenny crowley abby bumbledore Mike Farinaccio and Colleen Fahey. The music you hear at the beginning and end of the show is by Jukebox The Ghost. If you have questions, guest ideas, or if you want more information on working with Second City Works, you can go to www.secondcityworks.com or you can email us directly at works at secondcity.com.